Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. We light the beacon. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 101, The Vulcan Hello comes to you now. Indeed, Pete, and just a bit of fleet news before we get into the episode. We were so happy to hear in the last couple days that the official after show entitled After Trek that will, of course, be on CBS All Access, at least for those in these United States, uh, will be hosted by Matt Myra, who uh, is a podcaster himself, a writer on the Goldbergs, uh, formerly of Nerdist, and uh, definitely a fans fan. The right guy got the job, and we have gone from... Eh, maybe we'll check out that thing after we're done podcasting, too. I look forward to watching After Trek as soon as we are done podcasting. So often, as you mentioned, the the wrong person winds up in the job. Uh, somebody maybe who is a blabbermouth or somebody who gets names wrong or somebody who does both. Uh, but here, Matt, this was an inspired pick of another Matt and uh, glad to see him get it. Um, super uh, excited for what he's going to bring in that role. Saw some of the Facebook live stuff he was doing just about the time that uh, Star Trek Discovery aired on uh, CBS um, via my iPad here and uh, can't wait to see his show. And Pete, right before we start this episode's mission briefing, just want to say whether you're watching on CBS All Access, whether you're watching on Netflix, we are so glad to uh, to have you listening to us. We're glad that you have found us. We will be podcasting Star Trek Discovery each and every week that there's a new episode. And uh, I don't know about you, Pete. I'm ready for the mission to begin. Absolutely. They are coming, Matt. Indeed they are, Pete, and uh, we get the, the wonderful, I was going to say melodic, but the Klingon language, to my ears, is not particularly melodic, but certainly well, uh, well given here by, uh, by Chris Obie. Um, he is speaking about a coming threat. Pete, that's the us, the Federation. We are the coming threat. Nice little twist on things there. Also just some fantastic visuals throughout this first scene. I think intended to have a slightly off-kilter. Um, but uh, Takumva stresses that together under one creed, under Kalis, we can remain Klingon. Yes, this is your make something great again, uh, you know, parallel mirror that, that we are holding up Star Trek at its best with current uh, metaphor and uh, symbolism. Uh, but to Kuba explaining that they are going to reunite the 24 warring houses of Kales. So as we're told later in the episode through Sarek, the Klingon Empire has been in disarray. No one's seen them for 100 years and they're lighting the beacon today to assemble before they face the fatal greeting. We come in peace. Uh, indeed, and I like that because as soon as he says, you know, we're going to battle those who say we come in peace, I mean, not just is that a, a Federation and a Starfleet sentiment. Pete, that's what we said when we left the plaque on the moon. You know, we came in peace for all mankind. So really cutting, you know, cutting home to we as as 
the human species and whatnot. And indeed, the scene cuts to Burnham and Georgiou on a sand planet, lost perhaps. Mention is made of a coming sandstorm. That's Pete, your your uh, foot on the gas pedal there to speed things up. Uh, Burnham, however, stresses that they are not lost. Uh, there's a little bit of exposition. They're there to protect the egg sacs of a species that's about to be wiped out by climate change. Certainly some prescient, uh, some prescient reflection there for us. And that, Pete, brings us to Georgiou ready to, uh, to fire on the well. Yeah, I love the rapport that we're instantly exposed to. This is a captain in Philippa Georgiou who has been with Michael Burnham for seven years. Uh, the word you used before was was breezy. I'll use the word effortless. Uh, a scene like this could feel very heavily expository in a lot of other hands, but credit um, – Brian Fuller and uh, Akiva Goldsman for that. Yeah, every pilot, with maybe just just the rare exceptions when there's a, a perfect diamond formed, every pilot has to do all these things to introduce characters, settings, situation, um, to introduce you to the entire world of it. Uh, and then, of course, has to have its own story while they're explaining all these things. Add to it that this pilot has to introduce you to a completely new world, which is supposed to be incredibly familiar and in continuity with 750 other episodes of Star Trek and so on and so forth. And to me, while it, while this is not the best pilot I've ever seen, it is astonishing how we are in this scene here. Boom, right away. It is a classic Star Trek, and I don't mean the original mm -hmm. series, but this is just a Star Trek mission out to help some people who need it. There's passing reference made to, uh, you know, how, how they're not going to get caught by the uh, the inhabitants of this planet. Uh, that way, the Crepusculans here, Ooh. who are facing extinction. This uh, drought is scheduled to last 89 years. All the more uh, reason to get that well ready. You know, the the Federation looking out for future potential members again that piece and i love the transition from the klingon scene to the uh scene set on this planet i mean can we assume it's crepuscula if they're crepusculans <laughs> we don't we don't get a, a setting but uh we come in peace echoed there by burnham and though I am sure this particular situation of them bringing water to the thirsty people ahead of a drought, while I doubt that was done to be prescient, Pete, I can't help but notice, here we are, the good guys are making sure that things like basic uh, water for, for cleanliness and for bathing and for drinking, that that's getting to all the citizens who might need it, shades of you know some of our, uh, some of our recent natural disasters and whatnot. Um, but good news, Georgiou, she fires once, then twice down the well. It seems like it isn't working, but then it does. Water comes spurting up. Mission accomplished. Uh, Georgiou calls for a beam up, but uh, the storm, it turns out, is coming faster than they thought. And it's going to block them. And this is kind of the first moment where, A, it looks like Burnham doesn't have the perfect precision that that she had exuded, you know, as the scene started second on it. And, you know, I can't watch this. You can't watch this without having seen all the pre-production stuff and all the cast announcements and whatnot. There's probably some people that are ready for there to be pointy ears around the time that, that hood comes down. And you realize that she's not a Vulcan. 
Yes. And the other thing that struck me in what was going on here with some of the necessary um, exposition, uh, Burnham as a uh, exobiologist, um, the concern here that they're walking in a circle, um, the, the checking in on how long they've been together as uh, captain and uh crew member. It's not clear that she's been a, a first officer this entire time. Um, but they check the boxes, they check them quickly. And, you know, we name check even Saru, who's non-responsive via the comms, building up a little bit of tension here. And and Star Trek, when it gets going to begin and Medias rests as it does here, uh, that's always the way to go. I like to the line from Georgiou, you know, they're walking a particular path. Stay with me, Burnham. You know, it's not just the literal, we have to make a clearly uh, seen uh, Delta so we can be beamed up, but kind of, you know, it. the line is doing double duty of, hey, these are a pair here. They need to work together. Certainly shades of, uh, shades of foreshadowing for later on in the episode. Um, there's also, during the, the walk and talk, the notion that perhaps Burnham is ready for her own command. Also wonderful uh, setup, not having completely known what it is that, that, that will get Burnham, even at this point, we don't. I should mention, Pete, we have yet to see episode 102. Um, we don't know exactly how Burnham gets to Discovery, but there's this notion that she is this ascendant officer, which is setting up expectations that are then going to be demolished at the end of the episode. So again, it's a scene that's getting character stuff, uh, showing their efficiency, and setting up things later on in the episode. This concept of being lost, working on obviously a dual level, their perceived uh, lost situation in the desert here, and then everything going on with Michael Burnham in the course of this episode, uh, whatever took place in her childhood, the fear of the Klingons, the uh, running into the Klingons now, the way that the situation unfolds, it's really wonderfully set up here it is and of course the footprints uh, have not made a circle they've uh, created a, a yet uh, unseen shape which i'm saying oh they ruined it in the in the preview <laughs> good news so much from the various previews it, so much of it is from this episode that i feel much fresher for for the episodes to come but that said the shenzu appears kind of through the through the dust storm certainly an attractive looking ship uh Georgiou makes reference that she has set a star by which uh one can navigate and with that they beam up the wide shot of the uh of the starfleet delta and we've gotten this easy to digest start of things as we head into the title sequence yes the title sequence which uh leaked out earlier today um unexpected i think in the way that it does not incorporate uh live photography um but really really enjoy the sketches the schematics the way things kind of come apart and there is the discovery through all of it also can't help matt we've never had a title sequence that is this geared to a particular character and we have the silhouette of uh Sinequa martin green's uh michael burnham there so all the more to reinforce this is her show 
I particularly liked, by the way, in the title sequence, how when we see the two gloves, presumably of Burnham's uh, thruster suit, that's when we also get the credit for uh, Aaron Harberts and Gretchen J. Berg, the two uh, the two co-showrunners. So there's kind of this, you know, the two hands working together and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I like that this is different. And you know what? We haven't had a... A, a, a title sequence quite like this um enterprise is probably the other one that didn't do you mm-hmm. know starfield with ships flying you know what nothing is but ever even gonna... then it did <laughs> true it, it it had footage from you know uh first contact of uh the warp ship and and things like that and archival footage so uh this is this is novel um it's it's modern but at the same time it's timeless well, and that's that's what the original title sequence was on a whole lot of a of a smaller budget. So I think I think another mission accomplished here. Um, a couple of surprises that jumped out at me during the the title sequence. Pleasantly surprised to see Doug Jones getting second billing. Uh, a little bit surprised to see Jason Isaacs receiving the and Jason Isaacs uh, credit. And then Michelle Yao as special guest star. That one I did not see coming. Although I think. Even before seeing this episode, it's it was a ticking time bomb for how long until Captain Georgiou is is out of the picture because darn it, the story's gonna move from the Shenzhou to the Discovery at some point. But to me, this has now increased that ticking clock. We pick up Matt on Stardate twelve seven point three, which on Earth would equate to May eleventh, two thousand two hundred fifty-six. Here we are back in a familiar Star Trek moment. You know, it's the first officer's log. It feels like we never left. You know, Uh, they're looking at a damaged communications array. What has caused the damage? I love that we get a clear cut mission here. Uh, I was watching the pilot of another show, which I won't tangentially get into, but it lacked kind of something to to propel the story until other better things got going. So here we are. The communications array isn't working. Let's find out what it was. Pete. They're also at binary stars. Hold on. In our last podcast episode, you told me that episode 102 is called Battle of the Binary Stars. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, it's a beautiful sequence here working on the array and the, the tumbling of, of space. It, it's hard to, uh, even with the, the modern tools, get the feeling of space, particularly when you're going to have people in a ship that, all right, we've invented gravity plating and, you know, everything like that. But the, the tumbling camera shot as we come into the bridge with, uh, with Burnham looking out there was really a, a great establishing shot after they had already warped into this system. So, again, box checked, uh, hairs on arms standing up. We also get uh, some Saru dialogue here. He doesn't think that the damage was by mistake. Uh, I think we kind of learn as he is introduced how he's a little uh, a little skittish. So perhaps his his sense of alert is uh, is uh, not taken as seriously by the the officer's senior to him. Pete, maybe he's going to be you know we thought oh he's going to be the data he's going to be the spot maybe he's going to be the wharf who has really really great observations and people never listen to him. I love the sense of uh, 
knowing sarcasm that Doug Jones already injects into the character. The design is tremendous. Nay, the design of so many of these alien species and enhanced species on the bridge. There's the blue guy with, you know, looks like uh, suckers on his face. (laughs) Uh, like like uh, an octopus, and then there's you know uh, Mr. Lobot there, Januzzi, uh with the with the headset around there. Is it part of him? Does he just take it off? I don't know, but I want to know more. Um, and I even thought I saw, and I'm I'm running the episode again as as we're talking. I thought I saw later with Saru. I thought I saw a little prehensile things come off the side of his face absolutely later on yes one of the most tense moments yeah like what a what a great thing i had a roommate in college who you know he'd he'd sit down with us when i was watching star trek i had a roommate that loved star trek we'd watch next gen every seven o'clock out of boston um and you know he'd tease us in that you know every alien design was just a, a different head with bumps or something in a different place um as opposed to you know shall we say the star wars approach of all sorts of differently shaped aliens here they're already establishing with these alien offspring the crepusculans early on they've they've got you know uh, tentacles and they're bug-like and everything like there and and what we're seeing here with the shape of the rest of the bodies that Star Trek is evolving again. And obviously the state of prosthetics all these years later makes it easy to. And you know what, as we are on this bridge scene, Pete, I'm going to use a, I'm going to paraphrase somebody who in some, some Star Trek quarters, people don't like to hear his name, but this bridge scene made me think of, you know, JJ Abrams talking about, the universe uh, of Star Trek being bigger than what the camera can caption uh, can capture, knowing that whether it's next episode or five episodes or ten episodes from now, at a certain point, the Shenzhou is going to move out of the story, knowing that that means we can potentially have a bunch of these interesting bridge people um, <laughs> not continue on in the story, and knowing that there's the desire to bring back the larger Star Trek universe with comics, with books, and whatnot. Pete, I'm already eager. When's when's the pocketbooks paper book come out so I can find out about about screen face robot person? I don't I, I don't know. That's I his exact more. name, screen face robot person. But in her ready room here, Georgiou refers to Burnham as number one, Matt. Um, and uh, she's explaining again that Saru does not think uh, the damage is. Uh, unintentional um she points out uh georgiou that he's a kelpian he thinks everything is malicious so again uh telling us what things are but at the same time moving the story and the characterization forward in just this beautifully effortless way we've got classical music on in the background and and we're just melting into these scenes Saru is searching for there, there's a something out there. He gets it on the scanner. He loses it. Then he finds it again. Uh, he's able to to definitively, Pete, define it as an object of unknown origin. And I just, <laughs> you feel like not just these characters have a rapport with each other as well they should, having worked all these 
you know, bridge duties over the last you know seven years for Burnham and Georgiou. Who knows how long Saru has been there? But the actors bring it too. Just kind of this feeling of oh boy, here he goes again. I mean, this could be the bar cheers. This could be you know the the the, the bunch of friends on Magnum PI. They all. They all know, oh, here goes Saru. He's he's given us an official definition of he doesn't know what it is. Um, I love, too, the body language. Burnham physically kind of pushing him aside away from his console in a very brother-sister kind of way. Yeah, on top of the fact that he's at least a head taller than both of the characters there. And uh, how about the green eyes that he has that, you know, in the in the following scene when they're checking out the telescope, a a telescope, Matt, (laughs) we're going old school because, you know, though Burnham's reading off the displays, there's just some things that you you need a compass for. And I love that uh, it's Georgiou who seems to have a connection to these older types of technologies it, it says a lot about her character while you're showing us well and all that is made necessary by a sensor dead zone which on top of it the thing seems to be scrambling the optical processors um back to well, when you're eyes. in the accretion disc matt of of a star you know in in this area that uh, obviously is meant to not be found scientifically um you know something's up back to saru's eyes for a moment i mean i've seen all the previews and trailers and whatnot i I guess somehow i mean to me the green eyes i i didn't know the eyes were going to be green was that just a failing on my part or did they tweak the color uh for the pilot or or what what say you pete we're Richard Ford is is all I'm going to say. <laughs> we didn't have that that close up there. I guess they didn't want to show us him peering into a uh, a telescope and have people freak out. Oh, my God, they're still using telescopes. This is this is not Gene's trek. <laughs> um, regardless, with the telescope, they can hardly see what the thing is. Burnham at this point is ready to go out with a thruster pack. And uh, Saru notes all the risks to her, including the the wonderful line that her DNA will unravel like noodles. Yeah. So do we understand the threat? Yeah, you betcha. In in 20 minutes there, they're going to give her 19. Um, and to get her into this scattering field and uh, that, that she's going to be cut off. And Georgiou tells her, obviously, she cares about this officer who serves under her for seven years. You, I, Maybe we'll talk about this a little later when we talk theories, Matt. Did you get a feeling maybe there was a little bit more between these these officers? Because I, I think that was hinted at. Um, I did not, but we'll, we'll stick a pin in that for, uh, for when we – yeah, when we, when we analyze some theories later on. Okay, but Georgiou tells her just a flyby, which um, Burnham acknowledges here. And then I love the way in which uh, the the bridge crew with this this sense of unity and and camaraderie, the guys telling her, you know, this is flight 819 to the object of unknown origin. (laughs) You know, you're, you're heading out there like this is this is routine or something in a in a thruster pack uh, into the accretion disk of a binary star. Yes, that that narration of the uh, the plucky ensign, um, it it comes off as both highlighting how unusual this is, but also I think it just shows that Starfleet spirit of, 
hey, you know, got to put on a suit and go do it. Like it's that it's that can do attitude and it's that sense that they have a winning record where most of the time you go out and do this stuff and you, you, you help the crepusculians and you do this and you do that. And, and, you know, good always wins. You can't possibly imagine things going bad uh, or things going going tremendously bad. Um, as we see Burnham in this, uh, in this suit, which of course we've seen before in some of the behind the scenes stuff, it still is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I love the notion that the ship is turned to help better her, uh, with the trajectory. I think that that's something that earlier iterations of Trek, it wouldn't have occurred to them a, because there was kind of a naval, you know, earthbound ship mentality and B, the, the effects thought of just turning the ship when you can say oh and you 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 fire off there here it's totally believable here it's completely in place and um it, it's just wonderful you can see here as she as she takes off that she is beyond competent as is the whole crew you don't often get lighting like this in tv productions um you know, say what you want about Star Trek Generations, and I think there's quite a bit we could say. But uh, one of the things that I think made that movie truly cinematic was was the lighting they had by the the one Armagosa star there. Everything that took place around there, you know, was only like you see in a in a film universe. And they've talked up these visuals, and they've talked up these visuals, and Matt, they went far beyond my expectations oh yeah even down to the little heads-up display inside the suit that that tracks the eyeball um you get the sense it actually requires her to look at the go button for her to to fire even though there is a countdown i know that sounds counterintuitive but it just had this sense of 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 great user interface for the suit she gets the big burst she flies towards the the asteroids the debris and there's this wonderful little moment you know they 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 worked so hard to get this particular actress and here as she gasps first it seems like it might be fear but then she laughs in excitement because she's just eager for eager for this i noted the same thing and then to bring us back in the scene there that her blood pressure as they note on the bridge is a little elevated and georgiou knows her up she's having fun as she enters the debris field, the ship is increasingly unable to connect with her. No surprise there, I suppose. Uh, only, only surprises for the crew. Uh, that said, we get these close-ups on her face, then her eye, to show her excitement, maybe with an edge of fear, but Pete, she is ready to be boldly going. I can't recall any visual like this on TV through the asteroid field in this particular manner. Um, and I'm, I'm trying not to, to gush, but, you know, so much has been pointed out about the delay in terms of this project. Initially, we were supposed to get it in January of this year. And then for quite some time, it, it went without a date. And then finally, we had September 24th named. Um, there's not a thing about this pilot episode that doesn't make it worth the wait. And isn't it fitting, Pete? Classic Trek you know, twice delayed or, you know, delayed once by its, by its pilot, you know, the first pilot being rejected next generation, 
at least in its trajectory, delayed because it couldn't find a network, and then they went to syndication and so on and so forth. And here we are. There's been the delays for this show. Finally, we get to September 24th. It's ready to go at 8.30. Then the football game preceding the 60 minutes airing <laughs> delays it. goes into tremendous overtime, and we get this delayed by just 18 minutes more. You know, if, we've, if you've waited this long, 18 more minutes. Right. It, it's sublime, and indeed, that's what Burnham calls the object that she finds at the center of the debris field. It's old, centuries old. I think it's Klingon. Um, yeah. The surface appears to be stone <laughs> with some metal alloy exoskeleton. This was a fuller line, if ever there was one, Matt, as, as the time's ticking down to lethal radiation exposure. She's admiring the uh, surface of this craft, and uh, says here that she'd, she'd heard before that sculptures are crystallized spirituality. Um, if that wasn't cribbed out of a Hannibal episode and uh, squirreled away for this, I don't know what was. Pete, she clearly is more of an explorer than, you know, the likes of you and I. Uh, she she it doesn't shy away from this mysterious object. She lands on it, those boots magnetically adhering, and at that moment the the wings, quote unquote, the wings appear to flare up, and uh, suddenly the tension is through the roof. Yeah, having uh, thudded on there, um, there's some kind of uh, motion response, the opening, uh, and there's a proximity alert, uh, a figure which her uh, heads-up display quickly identifies through the iconography as Klingon. Uh, you even see the Batleth mat. You remember that, of course, the uh, traditional weapon of a, of a Klingon warrior before we even know it's the traditional weapon of a Klingon warrior because we're not in the next generation yet where the, the Klingons are so understood. Um, it's identified there. It's uh, swung. They kind of come together. It happened so fast. You you weren't sure was was he impaled? Was she impaled? How exactly did that go? But but somebody got it. That much is that much is true. To my eyes, one could see that the Batleth had gone through the Klingon, but all of a sudden she's askew, and and it's definitely an intended moment of things moving faster than you can understand on first viewing. Uh, we cut to the Shinzu where they've, they're continuing to uh, do, the, do the countdown until fatal radiation. They start to see that she's exiting the debris field, although there's not able to be kind of like a, you know, a, full, a full contact made. She's not answering the comms. Uh, the ship, however, is moving to pick her up, and we, just, we end this act with her spinning and astray and things not having gone well. We resume, Matt, with the Klingons here. Tekovna is explaining about their brother, their torch bearer, even here, uh, given the title, uh, that, that he's been killed by the Federation interloper um, and that their, their fallen brother is being launched, uh, Rejak was his name, and they give him the the customary roar uh into the afterlife there it's familiar from you know next generation and deep space nine yet it is so uh alien because of the way that these these klingons uh you know just appear and where it's set and the the ornate 
nature of this set is ridiculous. You know, we'd seen all of these uh, behind the scenes photos of this. They just did not do it justice. I love the little detail of how they open his eyes before being sent off to the afterlife. Uh, and speaking of what I suspect are some intentionally unclear moments, as his body is sent off, it, it, it's not clear where it's being sent to at this scene. It's not, it, my notes say body sent dot, dot, dot with other bodies. And there's just kind of this, you know, it, it's a somewhat confusing moment intentionally because later on we're going to get the scan from the Shenzhou and kind of the explanation uh, which will only serve to to uh, demonstrate how hallowed a, a ground this is. Uh, but with that, Pete, we cut to Burnham in the bio bed. Good news, Pete. They didn't kill her off. Um, <laughs> she does have significant burns. I, I, I wasn't, you know, I'm not saying, oh, this is shocking. This is walking dead level of gore. I was surprised at how significant her burns were. Yeah, and for her to later cut that short, I think highlighted the the makeup on this show beyond the crazy attention to detail with the the prosthetics, just that of uh, radiation burns and uh, you know damage to skin. Uh, really believable again how far we've come. She, in her in her uh, impaired state, flashes back, which is convenient because the story needs a flashback. And again, no sarcasm there. This is just the effortless way in which this pile is put together that we need some background on her. Yeah, her having a... She's just had a Klingon encounter, so we're going to flash back to another time where her and Klingons were an issue. Serves the story wonderfully. Uh, we see that familiar Vulcan questioning... Uh, the thing that we've seen before, the, whether the knowledge bowls, <laughs> indeed knowledge bowl. Da, da, da. Um, and you feel like even the computer is getting in on the, <laughs> the desire to help with the flashback, to help with the exposition, asking about those who have survived the Klingon attack on a Federation science outpost. Uh, it suggests that it was the death of her parents without overdoing it. They don't need to beat it over our head. Um, Pete Sarek is there and he says that her human heart is what slows her. Yeah. If you thought Sarek was cold and unfeeling towards his own child, then man, did they up that with a kid that is not his at all. Um, but this discussion and, and the, the goading by the computer, it's unintentional of what happened to the survivors at the uh, Dottori Alpha colony there obviously it freaks this little human girl out with that burnham awakes she has been uh, out for three hours uh she also is not done with her radiation fix however she boots the rather bulky sick bay uh for the bridge uh props to the the, the camera work in the set in this particular scene, because not knowing what's to come, but knowing that there's, you know, there's an expiration date on the Shenzhou as it relates to this story. It's not the big, lavish, ah, reveal of sickbay. It kind of looks like, you know, it looks like we're on an older ship. And with that, they're able to get away with bulky stuff, with things that aren't particularly, you know, I mean, things aren't sickbay of the future there's there's an age to it even as briefly as we see it regardless she makes her way to the bridge she tells the captain that she can id the the klingon house that was there um 
Pete, we just saw how she has knowledge about that. So well done. The flashback helping inform the story as it goes on here. Yeah. And though the uh, sick bay people are concerned about the genetic unspooling that that might happen, you know, we we did hint at that happening like a, a noodle before um, that she noticed the the warrior cast um, that uh, the, the footage on her camera is corrupted. She might have a concussion and she blurts out the first name, Matt, of her captain, something really reserved for like a, you know, Bones McCoy or, or something like that. And, and here to see it from a, a younger officer, I think, is, is a little bit more evidence to what we'll discuss with some theories later on. Regardless, Georgiou believes in her. She calls for a red alert and uh, they start to discuss how is it that they could flush out the Klingons. Um, Burnham suggests that they lock phase cannons on the object and it does flush out the Klingons and we see a ship decloaking. This is where Saru's hairs raise up from his neck. Um, and in this moment of, you know, am I seeing this properly? It appears that they don't read the decloaking as decloaking. In fact, there's reference made, you know, how do they warp in without a warp signature? We need to report back to Starfleet. Of course, as we will learn in a little while, um, they don't know about the ability for Klingon ships to cloak. Yeah, reference later to a, a stealth mode is made. Uh, maybe it's a different type of cloak than they thought about, something like that. Um, but uh, she had explained, uh, Burnham did, that she knocked the warrior into his blade. Um, so that makes it that much more clear what took place. Um, but it's funny, we get to the Vulcan hello later on the title of the episode when she contacts Sarek in real time, yet they kind of did the Vulcan hello. They targeted them and they, uh, they decloaked. So that logic, I think in retrospect, um, from the logical race, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, coincidentally, is a little bit confusing. Well, I think here's the difference. I think that the the gambit done by Starfleet here to appear that they're going to fire on it, like there's kind of there's a one-upsmanship here. Hey, we're going to blow up your thing. Oh, well, we're actually right here. Oh, well, we're going to keep it, uh, keep our aim on there, or won't we? Versus the very cold-blooded, uh, which is ironic because, you know, green blood and all that, but the very cold-blooded tact, as revealed later on, uh, the tact taken by the, the, the Vulcans of mercilessly destroy any Klingon ship that you see on site, then we'll talk about it. Um, I, to me, I kind of, I, I see how one is one-upsmanship and the other is utter destruction. Well, and again, put in the language of the episode there, uh, it's what they understand um, a little later on. As we see this Klingon ship as we come back from the act break. And by the way, Pete, precious few act breaks left. I mean, I guess the future episodes will have act breaks. It just won't be, I mean, I don't know, but it, it certainly won't be commercial breaks. That, that's so, so last century. Regardless, though, we see this Klingon ship. That's, there's this great twisty shot around the uh, kind of the geography of the two ships. I love that the Klingon ship looks big it looks powerful but it still kind of looks old school and almost looks in a, in a weird way looks proto 
what we know in classic trek even though you know classic trek ships aren't as detailed and whatnot this kind of looks like it's a forebear nonetheless this um, is labeled in the press kit the sarcophagus ship um and the the silhouette again with with so much of what we see in this episode is familiar yet new you you've got the 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 by uh you know sected end there like you would have on a on a bird of prey or on a on a d7 klingon cruiser yet at the same time we've never seen one covered with uh coffins um that that are later described there so again uh familiar yet new i don't think that it is the burden or responsibility of this show to constantly give us a glide glide path by which we get from this made in 2017 to the exact look iconography etc of a show that was made in the 1960s however what you're saying pete fits that nonetheless i think that when there's opportunities they should do so to kind of say hey there's less ornate designs out there but these are these are like the totally ornate klingons doing kind of things that aren't normally what's part of the empire there's your difference or there in it you can hide 50 years in difference in budgets and and uh visual effects abilities and so forth but anyhow pete we go inside the ship uh it is asked who is rejax next in line uh his brother announces himself and he's ready to be named as the the new torchbearer but you know the the brother isn't quite sure if the brothers and sisters the other klingons will answer the call and uh Tukumva says all Klingons must answer the call of Kalos when it lights the sky. And there's kind of this back and forth, you know, what is faith? What is literal? Uh, what will happen? Where's that line between how much we believe in this stuff? And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, uh, any other Klingon scene like this ends in bloodshed. The minute this guy, Orek, questioned Tukumva, I'm like, all right. There's going to be a mechleth in in his vertebrae before we know it. Um, And I appreciated that it didn't go that way, that uh, though there's heavy talk of of prophecy and then possible, uh, you know, undercutting that as fable, that that this is about faith, um, that they're trying to reunite this group uh, this signaling uh, mechanism that they're they're trying to uh, let all these Klingons know to to come back. This is all in in the light of Kales and their messianic uh, you know vision to to light this beacon, bring everybody back together. And amongst these Klingons, there's some difference of race, which is an interesting aspect. We, we see one that looks albino in nature and, uh, Valk there, son of none is ready to answer the call and be the torchbearer. Indeed he is. He says that he's ready to light the beacon, uh, but he cannot assume a family blade. How does that make him worthy? Uh, and he says, I mean, again, just showing kind of the fundamentalism of this, sect of Klingons he says that he is worthy by faith he serves the light of Kalos uh, and he puts his hand into the flame and I mean that's a 
that it's a jarring scene because clearly it's some sort of prop hand. You know, they're not act, asking the actor to put his hand into a flame, but that's a real thing. You know, a real fake hand, but it's a real thing in a real flame. That's at least how it looked. This didn't look like, oh, it's fake fire and this and that, the other. This guy is proving that he is a Klingon's Klingon. All this amongst these costumes, Matt, that almost look Elizabethan in their nature. So you've got the heavy makeup, you've got the outfits. This dude has his hand in a flame. Um, it, it's it's new Klingon stuff, but it might be the most Klingon stuff we've ever seen. It's Klingon stuff, not on a budget. And I mean, you know, obviously there's a limit here, and I certainly don't mean to take a slam at other iterations that we've seen some of the klingon arcs in next generation in deep space nine are wonderful but you look back at those episodes and you go okay they're reusing the costumes from the motion picture again again oh and each time the a different star trek asks us to look at at uniform changes which happen in their world each time you need you know you have a new show um uh, or you know even in our world there's periodic changes to military uniforms those Klingons, they stick with it because, darn it, Pete, we got 20 in, 20 in the costume department, still looking pretty fresh back from 1978 Star Trek The Motion Picture. Here, this has been set aside for future use, set aside for, you know, for, for, for 75 years from when this is taking place for the next generation. And as you say, it's these kind of, these costumes that are evocative of an older style Nice reminder that we are at an an earlier point than we are used to for Star Trek. You flash back to the shot that was taken unauthorized in February of actors in this makeup and in these outfits uh, eating. And, um, you know, the the controversy that ensued, you know, not, not my grandfather's, not my father's Klingons or whatever. Well, well, these are grandfather Klingons. <laughs> um, and you know, as Takovma pulls the, the hand, the, the smoldering hand of this hopeful, um, martyr, Matt, do, do we know that this isn't a suicide mission in the torchbearer suit to go light the beacon? I'm, I'm not so sure. It has the feeling of, of, you know, suicide bombing overtures here and the discussion of, of race that, you know, some might see this, the color of his skin as nature's mistake, but, you know, he there sees it as uh, a mirror. Um, he sees himself, Takovma says, in uh, Vok. And uh, it's here that uncredited, for the script, but we know uh, this is Laurel. This is Mary Chifo's character, the battle deck commander, saying that there's uh, long range uh, sensors ticking off, and we're we're brought back into the, you know, urgency of of what's currently happening. I will admit I had not read the dedication to being a torchbearer as as a suicide mission, suicide bomber. Um, analogy if nothing else i think you are totally right though that it's it, it has that that um that dark reverence to it and um 
you know, all of that, all, all of that kind of dedication to faith that, uh, that comes with such an awful act. Regardless though, Pete, as you said, Laurel brings us back to the urgency of the, of the Shenzhou. We head back to the Shenzhou. They're still trying to communicate. Luckily, Pete, they've been trying for like, you know, the last four minutes, which is the length of the scene on the Klingon ship. Um, and, uh, Saru at, at the moment is in command definitely looks a bit unprepared it is amazing what doug jones can do with a look with a turn i mean he, he's the prosthetics guy I get that but just getting up out of the chair how quickly it looks like he's gonna bump his head on the top of the set <laughs> anyhow burnham returns uh she gets an info update uh there is klingon dna on the surface this is saru explaining it to her the entire ship is covered with coffins some very very old some a few hours old way to go burn them killing one of them um and with that we kind of get the connection of oh we weren't supposed to understand that earlier now it's starting to make more sense yeah and uh really appreciate the the holographic um image there that she's able to peruse that they're covered with with coffins here um and the the discussion of um saru's backstory as a as a kelpian um you know the idea of food chains um where burnham comes from and then it's a binary system on the species map of the the kelpians uh that that he's bred to no death and he senses it coming Obviously, that that famous line uh, from the previews now now with a bit more explanation there, and again exposition at the perfect time. Meanwhile, Georgiou is on the the Hala talk um, with uh, with an admiral about this strange stealth device, kind of like a a cloak. Um, the admiral is ready to to not go with anything that Burnham is saying about her knowledge of Klingons after all who's seen them in the last century after all um which to me there was ever so slightly some um misinformation there on my part or at least I was confused well hasn't she if there was this attack and I will you know in in early in her childhood I'll grant you that that was not a comprehensive cultural analysis that was done during the attack but it, it just seems easy to say no one's seen Klingons for a hundred years. Oh, except for you, Burnham. Um, he does mention that the Europa is on the way. Pete, I've I've seen previews. <laughs> I, I worry about the Europa. That's all I'm going to say. I, yeah. I try to be spoiler free, but this was back in the early, you know, back in the the, the series previews several months ago. Um, but Burnham notes that every Klingon confrontation is gamed to end up as a fight. And boy, if you know Star Trek, you know that that's the truth. Yes, and this Admiral floating Burnham's backstory that given her background, she's the last person to make assumptions based on race um, beyond the uh, cultural. There's what she's gone through, which has to be the 800 pound elephant in the room. Um, you know, was she believed with uh, what she went through as a child and then winding up in the hands of uh, Vulcans, um, which he's duly alluding to. Indeed. And Pete, just when you think this might get to be a little too talky, the ready room suddenly lights up, which, and this is zero sarcasm here, 
A, the, the lighting up serves the story, as we're about to learn in a moment with the whole beacon and whatnot. B, it's also incredibly inexpensive to do. Mm-hmm. It, you put a white sheet outside the, the windows and you shine a light at them. So they're able to kind of have their, they're able to not have their cake and, and eat it too, if you will. Um, the captain's called to the bridge. The light is continuing. It's burning through the filters. Pete, there's chaos on the bridge. That's not because <laughs> of Gene Roddenberry's lawyer and Maurice Hurley. It's just actual chaos on the bridge to end the act. One billion uh, lumens per square meter. So it, it's quantified. Just quick story check in before that. There's a, a station at Eagle 12, which is three light years away. And then there's an Andorian colony which is six. So uh, as Sarek mentions uh, later on, uh, Gamma Hydra, by the way, was where the, uh, the, uh, the Andorian colony was. So some, you know, Easter eggs. But um, as, as Sarek mentions later on, they are truly on the edge, though they are in Federation space and the discussion of, of retreat will retreat from our own space. That that's, you know, not something we can do later on and that's what saru is is advocating um that, that they back off but um you know the, that the light goes off that it interrupts this discussion and what their options are and really forces their hand we return from the act break with uh, the bridge still overpowered still overlit there's lights there's sound it's put on mute and just a wonderful, unnecessary, but lovely line. Why is there still a sound? Saru explains the ship is still humming. There's the, the sympathetic uh, resonance of the actual impact of the broadcast going through the physical body of the ship. Um, there's, they, they, they wonder if there are more Klingons coming, particularly, Pete, if this is a signal. Right. And um, the, the pulse that they're picking up on, what, what if they're calling like we are for backup uh, Burnham notes? Um, so she asks at this moment of highest tension, Matt, to leave the bridge. <gasps> what? Uh, and it, initially, Georgiou was like, wait, but oh, it's relevant. Uh, she goes to her quarter. She calls Sarek. Uh, who instantly Excuse me, Pete. Goes, she encrypt calls Sarek. Okay, <laughs> let's not undersell it here. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> who who notes that she is uh, emotional, um, and uh, he ex- he's explained what what happened here, um, and he notes that it's rare to encounter one's demons in the flesh, uh, but Burnham tells him that he killed one. Uh, and given that they killed her parents, it's only fair. Um, but he trusts that this call was not made for emotional solace. Which has its own slight burn to it. I mean, this is this is everything. Burnham. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, everything that there is not to like about the Vulcans, everything that Spock was in tension with, but there still was the human side. Uh, that added to the the shades of gray with that character. I mean, I mean, again, everything that's unlikable about the Vulcans we see here in Sarek. I hate you, Dad. Uh, anyhow, he intuits that a change in behavior could be due to a change in uh, in leadership. Yeah. Which, Pete, I just wrote that line like as he said it or as the notes came to me. Let's just reflect on that for one more moment here. Well, a change even... in behavior could be due to a change in leadership. Hmm. 
even further these these influences uh, that great unifiers often have a profound cause and here indicated directly war. Um, so, wow. Um, and you're, you're talking about this having been written uh, at least a year ago, if not a little bit more, and then I'm sure um, edited and revised as they began filming in January. But holy smokes, Matt, is this both relevant and compelling? <laughs> I mean, the relevance rising to the top here as we as we offer our analysis burnham gets to the meat of it though how did the vulcans attain diplomatic relations with the klingons uh how how was peace achieved uh, he says it may be a uniquely vulcan solution still though she needs the info and again this is another scene where obviously we don't know the the punchline for lack of a better word we don't know what the vulcan hello is but there's kind of this moment of what's going on i don't understand what's going on and that's propelling questions so that when the answer comes it has has more weight to it um presumably another moment occurs off screen because then we get burnham to bridge burnham to the bridge with a solution the solution is to fire first pete yeah just want to give special praise though to james frayne's sarek uh we've had him played you know by three actors now the the venerable Mark Leonard, who was also the the first extra bumpy Klingon in um, the motion picture, and then Ben Cross in the Star Trek 2009. And for a third actor inhabiting this role, um, you, you never question the other incarnations. And I, I think that's his greatest contribution to this on top of the detached way he interacts with a Burnham, a, a child in his care from a from a massacre and, you know, remaining true to that Vulcan, uh, you know, detachment. Well, it's here that we get the explanation. The Vulcan solution was for the Vulcans to fire first. Uh, they learned that after losing the first ship without warning. They said 240 Hello. years ago, too. So it's not exactly like this is recent. Indeed, they said hello with violence. Violence brought respect and respect brought peace, which that's the first moment where I was like, but wait, the hero of the show is saying that line of logic. And I don't know that that's the world I want to live in. Um, but there is the conclusion that they need to give the Klingons the Vulcan hello. Yes, and Burnham points out, is quick to point out, her success rate in seven years as an officer. So here's here's the Vulcan influence that you would boil decisions down to. Did I get this right? Did I not get this right? Which hindsight being 2020 is understandable. But, you know, when would you trump out your your success rate? Um, in a in a military situation with such high tension, that that's a purely Vulcan uh, thing to do. Um, it's Vulcan arrogance without emotion. Vulcan <laughs> arrogance with math. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, to 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 throw this out there as a solution, and of course, Georgiou, uh says that Starfleet doesn't fire first, um, which. The, the conflict rising outside, we've got the internal turmoil 
with Burnham as a human with a Vulcan background and then the person to person conflict between a captain and a first officer. So all of the things that make Star Trek great again. <laughs> uh, Burnham is being so out of line that the conversation moves to the ready room. Georgiou says that Burnham is being emotional. Uh, and we see that. We see Burnham getting emotional. Uh, Georgiou ultimately tells her to stand down. Um, and uh, Burnham admits that, yeah, she might not be herself. Georgiou then puts an arm on Burnham. And Burnham Vulcan neck pinches her. And this was shocking. Complete, completely shocking territory, Pete. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, taking notes, live tweeting, everything like that. I'm like, wait, did I see that or did she hit her? What happened? No, she Vulcan neck pinched her. OK, uh, tells her her she's sorry and then goes out and Saru instantly senses something is up. And I love it. I love it because <laughs> if nothing else, we know that uh, Burnham, our hero, is wrong. Um she comes out, she takes command of the bridge, relieves Saru of, of uh, not command in general, but just of bridge command. She calls for torpedoes to be loaded, to take aim at the neck of the Klingon ship. And um, Important given what just took place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, the torpedoes are then declared to be ready to fire, and Georgiou then appears. She has a phaser on Burnham. Great phaser design. We'll save the nerding out of design for a later time, but um, and that's when, as we saw in, in the preview, there are warp signatures coming in. They're not Starfleet, they're Klingon, and we get the debris field just filling up with about a dozen smaller ships and and <laughs> things not looking well for the, the, the good crew of the Shenzhou. And see on cbsallaccess.com. Um, you know, as, as we predicted, they were going to leave in a, a moment of rather high tension. And, and that's what you do. And given that the second episode is called Battle at the Binary Stars, you know what has to take place. But now we have uh, Burnham, a character in a position who's effectively committed mutiny. Her captain has drawn on her in full view of the entire bridge crew. I can't imagine Saru is going to want to get close to her again, uh, apart from their already pseudo adversarial uh, relationship. So, you know, conflict, it's all about conflict as, as the warp engine, Matt, of your starship. And this thing is on warp factor nine. Things looking so dire for the crew of the Shenzhou, Pete. Let's perform a tactical analysis. Where should we start? Naturally, where the entire tale began, Matt, with Tekovma uh, in this authority attempting to reunite these 24 warring Klingon houses. Really, really compelling performance out of Chris Obi. Uh, I know that we've seen him in makeup. I know that we've seen the actor speak, you know, in English uh, enthusiastically on on uh, on social media and whatnot. He's British, no? Uh, he is British, indeed. Yeah. I it's mean, it's tough to to get that that Klingon uh, with the with the English accent. <laughs> I think it might be tough for anybody, but. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there, the, you believe that he is the he, he's a religious fundamentalist. You believe that in his performance. This is a guy pushing through all this latex, 
through the costume, so on and so forth, and you just buy it. You buy Tukovma as somebody who can easily scoop up people of, of a similar mindset and inspire them to do great and terrible things. It might be uh, a factor of the ornate outfits and, and the prosthesis. They did seem a little bit stiff other than uh, the, the torchbearer who we find out in retrospect, his name was Rajak, the, the first one who you know was out on the surface of the uh, sacred beacon um, that we see move quickly and you know then float off once he's you know fallen on his bat lift or been pushed into it. Um, but that's the only uh, complaint I have about the the Klingons to, to this point. I mean, it just, tremendous tremendous detail and uh between Tukovma's forthrightedness you know his assurance of of what this is and the the tinge of prophecy that we learn from the other characters it may or may not be believed that the lion's share of them are, are committed to his cause and it would be so easy to just have him giving the speech and them saying you know you know, Sig Heil or some kind of Klingon version where there's there's a notion of unity here. But we see in Orek, the, the, the brother who is reluctant to take up the mantle of Torchbearer, we see some of these shades of gray amongst them and everyone's not entirely sure how committed they are to this thing. Um, which to me is, it's one of these things, it's an unnecessary addition, but it adds so much depth to it. I love in Laurel, I love in the Klingon battle commander who we identify as a female, that we don't have to identify her as a female because there's a little window for her cleavage on her Klingon outfit. Um, and not to say that you can't appreciate those outfits later on in the next generation and everything that came out of that uh, interpretation, perception of the Klingons. Um, but again, within this Victorian style, uh, you know, really fancy Klingon fundamentalism, uh, for a, a, a woman to be just as attired as, as the male similarly attired, you, you have to hear the voice to know, and, and some viewers might not even have known, uh, that in the lighter dress there, she is female. With that, Pete, let's analyze some theories. Where should we begin? Let's start with the theory of mistrusting peace um, and, and everything that, that goes along with that. You mentioned before the, the plaque on the moon. Um, what do you think the, the motivation is in mistrusting people that come with, with the fatal words he said, we come in peace? Well, I, I mean, I think that it, it is rather in line with how he was introduced at the very, very top, which is, I'll assume that he believes everything that he's saying, but it's, the, it's with this desire to unify everyone under that one creed, unify people under Kalos, who let's not forget is a, you know, a, a Klingon Christ figure. Let's use religion to keep racial purity, to return to the way things used to be, to get back to those good old the, the good old days that have been taken away by the other. And uh, they say, we come in peace. We, the Klingons, can use war to uh, war to advance our, uh, our, our causes socially, politically, economically, and, uh, and for the hearts and minds of the Klingon people. 
But is it not a self-fulfilling prophecy? We we begin the episode with their coming. And the other thing from a, um, a theory standpoint, I'm still not entirely sure if this very first scene didn't occur after the torchbearer was killed. Um, you know, they, they were going to light the beacon, uh, but were they disturbed first and then they need to light the beacon or was it the whole time? We know that the Federation is, is coming. We, we see them outside our window. Now, uh, they can't help themselves. They're explorers. We are warriors. Uh, it's inevitable and, and it's going to happen because you look at the cycle of war, a, a warrior is going to war an explorer is going to explore. And, and that's what makes this, conflict compelling the federation is in over its head because they're not renowned solely for their their fighting prowess in a way that the klingons aren't renowned for their scientific acumen i, I think that it was done with the knowledge that uh, or, or all these statements were made at the top of the episode were done with the knowledge that the communications array had been taken out so it was only a matter of time before somebody came along and somebody started nosing around and that would probably result, since they are explorers, they're not just going to say, oh, a thing happened to it, let's fix it and move on. They're going to want to answer that essential question, why? And that is gonna, going to lead to, uh, to things increasing, to tension increasing. I say this uh, for my next point, and, and I truly mean this to not be sexist, but I, I picked up on a, on a little bit of sexual tension between um, – Captain Georgiou and uh, Commander Burnham, uh, the the use of her name, the you know obviously they've been together for seven years, uh, and it it could just be older sister, younger sister type of stuff. Matt, tell me I'm wrong. I had not caught that on first viewing. Now that said, things were going fast and furious with the particulars of the episode, taking notes, getting some tweets in there. Uh, this is certainly an episode worth uh, revisiting, rewatching. I look forward to doing that soon. I just need to watch the next episode, which we're going to do tomorrow, and then we're going to podcast. Well, I'm watching evening. it immediately after this podcast. Uh, well, there you go. <laughs> but I'm mean, p- point is, I have a couple other things to do before that, which is watch episode <laughs> 102 and then podcast it. But uh, I will. I'll keep an eye out for that. I don't think that there's necessarily anything. Um, I don't think there's anything off the table when it comes to that. The only exception. Perhaps being, I don't know that that would be professional amongst officers. Um, certainly the same sex stuff, you know, who cares? 2017, right. um, we're richer for it. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll stick a pin in that one for now. You know, particularly in the way the betrayal as first officer to captain with what goes on with the, the neck pinch and then later her captain drawing down on her. Um, you know, uh, r- relationship or no, uh, it, it, it's still that total betrayal. Um, just wondering if there was some sprinkling in of, of that doubt intentionally or unintentionally last for me, Matt, I mentioned it before they, they target the sarcophagus ship. Um, and I'm sorry, they, they target the, um, uh, the signal emitter and then the sarcophagus ship decloaks yet later we hear about the Vulcan hello. Um, 
how do you square that to be told, well, you've got to fire on them so that they respect you. Uh, you know, we lost this ship 240 years ago and, and now we know, and, and now, you know, we, we have blood wine together, uh, you know, at, at the outpost. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, if we're seeing in Burnham, somebody who is, uh, who is flawed as a, not quite an anti-hero, but somebody who's not going to be the shining example of constant perfection, as we saw with the first two, two uh, Star Trek series, um, I can't square a Starfleet, a Federation, a future for us where you have at your disposal, uh, you, you know, where you're okay doing the Vulcan hello. I buy Sarek and what he says that this may be singular to the Vulcan people because it is so uh, cutthroat and is so such an awful thing to do that you need to be emotionless, literally emotionless or as emotionless as the Vulcans get because, of course, they are not without emotion. They just bury them down, you know, deeply. Um, it needs to be without emotion to do this to other creatures. Uh, the minute that you have compassion and have sympathy and all these things that make us human and just as the Federation is a proxy for, you know, we as a species, we as a planet, th this is not a good solution moving forward. Uh, and we have seen that in headlines recently to say we're just going to blast you off the map. That does not help things. And other solutions need to be made. With that, Pete, let's go to hailing frequencies. Hailing frequencies open, sir. You've heard enough of what we've had to say. Matt, what are the people out there saying about this Star Trek pilot? Pete, first we have a tweet from Gregory Stern that's at WahooFX. Uh, he says, gonna rewatch Ep 1, then watch Episode 2. Love it. So, so clearly think, somebody who's who's jumped on the CBS all access bandwagon, it seems to be the biggest bone of contention amongst longtime fans is, am I going to pay for this? Am I going to wait for this? Um, and we're going to know very soon how much uh, people, uh, you know, uh, how soon they flock uh, to this. The second episode was unlocked as the first episode was playing over the air. And again, they were backed up a little because of the Parisi square game that went over the time. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's there. Um, and you know, the, the, the siren lure Matt of, of more star Trek and, you know, the, the high tension that we left, uh, I, I think their, their bet is a, is a, is a pretty safe one. Well, I will say to all our international listeners, uh, this these two episodes are going to get unlocked on Netflix. As we are recording now, they're going to get unlocked in about three and a half hours. Uh, I will just repeat that uh, tomorrow evening we will be doing episode 102 for the podcast. So feel free to be in touch with your thoughts on the pilot. We'll, you know, <laughs> that'll be how that is given the, uh, the, the international nature of this. Um, but Pete, let's bring it back to uh, to the U.S. airing here. There was a tweet from at Talking DSC uh, who said that uh, the production quality of the show is phenomenal. It is through the roof, and um, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what else they'll show us. It, it's understandable the nature of TV that they they blow a lot of money on the initial. Uh, look, the the sets, the prosthetics, everything like that. 
um, how much more new stuff they'll they'll give us as we go along. Uh, I can't wait till we get to the mud episodes, Matt. I I saw in the in the press kit. There's a really detailed picture of uh, Rain Wilson's Harry Mud, and his outfit is both modern and harkens back so heavily to that earlier incarnation of uh, hardcore Fenton mud that uh, we all know and love. Adding to the astonishing nature of the production value is the fact that we have yet to get to the sets that the show is about. You know, whatever mm-hmm. the standing sets are going to be when this completes its its 10 season run and so on and so forth. We have yet to get there. Now, behind the scenes, do I suspect that maybe there's going to be some set flipping with things that we've seen for the Shenzhou have been built with an eye towards um, use on the, the Discovery set proper. Okay, maybe, but we're not there yet. And it brings up an interesting point. So the Discovery does not appear in the pilot episode. So the thing that it is about is missing. So a couple things. Is this a two-hour premiere? Most of the other shows premiered in a feature-length format. Uh, obviously, the Discovery will show up in the second episode. I mean, you, you can't go one, almost uh, one-seventh of, of the season, Matt, without the titular ship showing up. And obviously, it, it's a double entendre, the Discovery, the exploration of it all, particularly within Star Trek. Um but really a bold choice on top of the fact, hey, you get this hour for free. You, you know this other hour? If you want to see the Discovery, which this show is about, you got to pay for this. Um, History is going to have its say about this. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're going to sit back like, like everybody else and, and evaluate it. Um, but, you know, to, to use Captain Lorca's line, which is using uh, – Captain Cisco's line, fortune favors the bold. Well, Pete, here's the discussion had at CBS many moons ago. <laughs> uh, we need a two-hour pilot, but we can't call it pilot part one and pilot part two because then people will be really ticked. Um, we need to give the impression that there's this one for free and it's going to be so good that it gets you to the next one. But they're going to premiere the same night because of CBS All Access, blah, blah, blah. So make it a two-hour premiere but that has very clear delineations of part one and part two but for heaven's sake don't call them part one and part two pete on that note we had announced on twitter that we are uh, doing a little giveaway truth be told we didn't say the the full totality of it so let's say what it is right now pete for this episode and for episode 102 that we will be recording tomorrow uh we will be giving away uh two officially licensed Star Trek Discovery insignia badges. Uh, What we have not said, what we can reveal now, is that we actually have five on the way. So these two winners will get their pick from Command, Ops, Science, or Medical. So we're going to give one away now. We're going to give another way in the next episode based on people who have... uh, who have uh, gone to the tweet that we put up about the contest. They've favorited, they've retweeted, they've followed us. But Pete, after episode 102, we're still going to have three more badges that we're going to have to figure out how we want to give those away as well. And I'm looking at the picture right now. These are really sweet. We, we don't have them in hand yet. They were just ordered yeah. a couple days ago. But uh, cannot wait to, uh, to, to give them away. And Pete, the moment has come. You have all the, the names in the hat. Who are we picking? 
I have pulled out, Matt, of the hat at Jen Phillips 721. So, uh, Jennifer, uh, you can get in touch with uh, Fantastic Geek on uh, Twitter and uh, get us your address and tell us your pick of those various departments and uh, we'll get you your badge. Congratulations. You got to be in it to win it. So four more to go. I am completely jealous of these uh, and, and we can't win. So uh, yeah. I, I certainly Pete, I, I want to wait until they get here. If they look as good as they do in the pictures, we might, <laughs> we might do a separate order. You and I just for, just for ourselves, you know, cause this looks like some, uh, some awesome stuff indeed. Well, that Pete, as mentioned, we'll be back tomorrow to talk more Star Trek Discovery. Let's talk about how people can be in touch with us. Let's start with you. How can people open hailing frequencies uh, on that encrypted comm channel to be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R-9469. followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a P and an H. Visit fantasticgeek.com. Leave a comment. Email fantasticgeek at gmail.com. Leave a message on our Google Voice listener line, 732-707-1815. Uh, you also can find us on Twitter and Instagram as uh, Fantastic Geek as well. We'll be attending New York Comic Con in the coming weeks, and there's going to be plenty of Star Trek Discovery coverage there in addition to uh, Marvel TV, Marvel movies, all the Comic Con goodness. So now's a great time to join the call, join the Federation. Pete, how else can people be in touch with you? Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. Like it today. And again, whether it's Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery, all the work in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we cover, uh, it'll be there for you. Well, with that, Pete, I will say live long and prosper to all our listeners and give you the final word. I see you as you see the end. Bye.